Good morning, Northbrook. My name is Jeremy Dane. This morning I'm going to be reading the scripture for us. I'll be reading from our house Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you today, they're on the back table back there. Feel free, if you don't happen to own one of your own, to take one with you as a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have that. This morning I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 23. So starting in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. It's great to be with you again, open God's word and consider all that he has for us. Uh, a couple things before we get going into the passage today, I uh, wanted to follow up on one thing from last week and just mention some opportunities that will be coming up for you in the fall. So as elders, you know, we consider and pray and think about, okay, what do we want to focus on as a church? Where do we feel like the Spirit's leading us? Um, and, you know, these are kind of three pretty you know, things we always need to be focusing on, but we wanted to make sure that uh, these were areas that we were uh, really stewarding our resources, our time, our energy, and our prayers toward. And a couple of them, there'll be a lot of opportunities for you this fall. Uh, The two that I'm going to highlight are just prayer and evangelism. Um, And I highlight uh, those for a couple reasons. One, I just, I said this, I wanted to say this to the leaders before I said it to y'all. We had a leader meeting just the other day, is when it comes to evangelism, uh, just our predominant feeling, as soon as maybe you even heard the word, is, is just guilt. Uh, it's just uh, guilt or obligation or struggle. And, and I don't think, I, I hope we can get there, but I think it's really hard for us as a church and as a people to realize how much we need to pray. Um, I, I think we, it's really easy for us to feel guilty, really easy for us to feel obligated, really hard for us to realize, oh, we really need to pray. Um, we need to labor in prayer, as Paul says. We need to be persistent in prayer. Uh, we need to continue in prayer. Uh, we need to see the value in prayer. We need to realize we haven't prayed and start praying again. Uh, we need to get up after we've been knocked down, and we need to pray. Um, and so that's one of the things I want us to consider as a church in this area of evangelism. Is uh, One of the things I told the leaders is, what if we had a revival of prayer? Like as we think about revival and as we think about God pouring out his spirit, often we think about the fruit, uh, but what if God just poured out his spirit to even make us pray? 
Um, what, a, what a sweet gift that would be and what a, what a desire uh, as uh, your elders and pastors at Northbrook for us to be uh, that kind of church. And so even as we prayed, uh, pre- preached on that uh, last week, one of the things I, I was uh, just picked up a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. Really helpful little book. And he, he has a couple little tidbits in there. And one is he says, we don't pray. This is me. This is you. Uh, we often just don't pray because we don't plan to pray. Like we have no plan to pray. We have a desire to pray. If you love Jesus, the Spirit's in you. You desire to pray. We desire to pray. We pray on occasion. Uh, but we don't pray more because we don't plan to pray more. Um, and so I just want to challenge us. Just to give us a week challenge. Just, I'm, well, the elders will be in Jordan. We'll probably have lots of reasons to even just pray in that moment. Uh, Reed's going to be praying as he leads us through uh, an area that he's the only one familiar with. And me and Randy and Dustin are just following him blind. And he's like the dad of the trip. Uh, so pray for Reed. Um, but uh, this week, I just want to challenge you. Look at your calendar. Look at your week and plan times to pray. Uh, plan maybe more time. And I'm not even saying be extravagant. You know, oh, you know, pray for an hour or three times a day. Just whatever you're doing right now, plan a couple more times to pray. Maybe it's five minutes during lunch. Maybe it's right before bed. Maybe it's right when you wake up. Whether that's 5 a.m. or whether that's 9 a.m. Whenever it is. Um, just plan to pray. And then another thing that is a, it's a common Puritan uh, saying, but pray until you pray. Like pray until you start praying. The, the idea is, you know, we all start our prayers kind of a little like whatever, however we got there, but that we keep praying until the Spirit moves in our hearts and lives and really helps us uh, earnestly pray. And that can happen in a couple minutes, but that could be a goal, that could be a desire, uh, is that we want, uh, we should want to experience Jesus. We should want to experience intimacy uh, with the Spirit as we pray. We don't get that every time, and it ebbs and flows, but that's a good desire. And so I just wanted to challenge us in that um, as we, and then we have all, you'll see this at the end of this service, but obviously we have a night of prayer coming up that's welcome to all, and so we, that's what we want, that's why we're doing those kinds of nights, is because we want to be uh, a praying church. And so I just want to encourage you in that way. And then again, we're starting some groups, kind of a, a pilot group, if you will, uh, this fall that is just based on evangelism. Um, and you haven't heard a lot about it because we're just, we're going to do one group first and then we're going to kind of open it up to the church. But even in this fall, there's going to be some opportunities where we're just going to invite you into, whether we're going on a prayer walk or we're doing something where we can just invite the whole church to. Uh, so be, keep those in mind or have your, um, ears open for when those opportunities come about. So that is that. Today, we are wrapping up most of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and at the very beginning, we, we talked about some of the typical responses to the sermon, like when people read uh, the Sermon on the Mount or when people kind of flippantly use the sermon. And one of the, re- one of the things that we typically respond uh, to Jesus just in general is we really love when Jesus calls people out. We really love when Jesus calls out hypocrisy and other people. Uh, We really love when Jesus makes fun of the religious leaders that surely we're nothing like. Uh, We really love when he does that. And he does that in the Sermon on the Mount. He does that uh, throughout his ministry. But today, and really the Sermon on the Mount does this all all throughout, but today uh, we are not going to be let off the hook uh, unless you just don't listen. Uh, Because our response should be, obviously, okay, what does God have for me in this? Uh, not the excitement of him calling out other people, uh, but, but this is one of those passages that none of us just escape from, uh, that, that Jesus has much to say uh, to each of us. 
And, and there's really kind of four movements that we see in this passage. He concludes the main body of the sermon with the, the famous golden rule in verse 12. And then we see his just wise conclusion of this sermon that leads any genuine listener to pause and consider. Uh, and then next week, uh, we're, you know, we're not, I'm not going to go to Jordan and come back and preach. And so, but uh, Dave Bruscus, who many of you know and love and uh, is uh, going to be a, a gift to us, uh, is going to close out the, the Sermon on the Mount uh, next week. But before we get there, he, we'll, we'll see kind of three kind of choices that Jesus lays before us. There's two different ways, there's two different kinds of prophets, and then two different kinds of Christians or professing Christians. Uh, if you will. And we're just going to walk through these four movements as we see them um, in this passage. And, and I, I just want us to consider, as Jesus speaks to us, as you think about your life, as you think about your struggles, as you think about the things you come into uh, this place with, even now, like just where else are you going to go for the words of life? Like we have Jesus to come to here in this moment right now, and so I would encourage you uh, to do that. And so in verse 12, Jesus says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so again, this is the conclusion of his whole body. So it started in uh, chapter 5, verse 12, and now it's ending uh, right here. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 17, and it's ending right here in chapter 7, verse 12. And one of the reasons I continue to highlight that is because often we go to uh, the Sermon on the Mount and we pick out these little things, and that's all one sermon. And so they're, they're related to one another, and you don't just go out and pick it. That's, that, all of that is Jesus is, is uh, communicating to us uh, what he wants us to know. And so don't just like cherry pick a sermon, uh, a verse from the Sermon on the Mount, but that's one whole sermon that Jesus uh, is preaching there, and this is the conclusion. Um, and this conclusion, verse 12, it just cuts through the legalistic law-keeping uh, that, that the Pharisees, Pharisees construct, that we all want to know uh, exactly what we need to do or don't do. But also, if you notice, it's not just reactive. It's not just, you know, don't do bad things to people. That's actually it was a common saying, like, hey, this would, you'd feel bad about this. Don't, don't do it. Jesus is going another level. He, he, he's being proactive here. Jesus is saying not just to not do bad to others, but, but actually proactively do good to others. And it's so comprehensive that it's not just a summation. Jesus says this is the law and the prophets. That every letter, every rule, everything we look to in the law and the prophets can be found, the heart of it can be found in this statement. And Jesus is summing up all the relational parts of the Sermon on the Mount with this statement. As we think about being merciful, pure-hearted, forgiving, and slow to anger, all of those exhortations are encapsulated in this one saying that we're all so incredibly familiar with. But this uh, does assume the other realities of the sermon uh, are in place. For instance, that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not pursuing sinful, selfish motives. I think as we think about uh, this uh, idea, the golden rule that we're all so familiar with, um, here's the reality. We don't always want people to do good to us. We don't want people to always say good to us. There are people we encounter, and they don't want us to do good to them. But even if you think about that one word in verse 12, just good, 
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you would wish others to do to you, just the idea of assuming the, the reality of the Sermon on the Mount, that we're hungering and thirsting and righteous, that we're poor in spirit, that we have no hope without Jesus, that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the only place where truth comes from, so we know that whatever we're wanting to do for someone, it has to line up with what Jesus would want to do for them. And so as we think about that, are you, are, are we, are we, do, we, do we have that in mind, the reality of actually doing good to others? Or do we just want to do what they want us to do for them? Sometimes doing good for them, sometimes doing what Jesus would have us do for them is the very thing they don't want us to do. It's kind of the idea of just going to someone, you know, you go to someone because you want to hear what you want to hear. Like, man, I'm struggling with this. I know this person is going to just kind of uh, coax me to do whatever I really want to do. And I'm not going to go to this person, this other person, who I know they actually love me, they love Jesus, but you know what? I'm afraid they may press against what I want to do. I'm afraid I want to do something that may not line up with what they say or what they want for me or what Jesus wants for me, so I'm just going to avoid that hard conversation. Again, when we're thinking about doing to others as we wish to be done, we have to realize that it uh, has to be what Jesus wants for them. And I think about two uh, specific examples uh, of this that, that we can take this the wrong way. There's the, the classic um, idea of just doing good for others and, and doing whatever we could do to possibly do, um, well, as, as much as we can for them. That, that mercy and grace towards people means doing everything all the time in whatever way that they would want. And one of the things I want us to learn and understand as God's people is that God's grace and God's mercy and God's care for one another is not naive. We are often naive, but God's grace is not naive. The cross proves that God's grace is not naive. Like Jesus knew what he was dying for. Jesus knew the sin that he was paying for. Um, and so often we uh, overlook sin in our life and other people's lives as we try to be gracious and merciful to them. And, and one of the classic ways this comes up, and it's so hard for all of us, especially when our heartstrings are pulled, is just that classic enabling situation. So think about this. If you're falling off a cliff, you would want someone to save you. If you're about to fall off a cliff, I guess if you're falling, sorry, um, but unless Iron Man comes into the picture. Uh, but if you're about to fall, you want someone to save you. So if you're seeing someone about to fall off a cliff, you should go save them. But now, what if you back up, you save them, and you see that person go just right back and hang off the cliff again? And then you realize, oh, this person is just constantly going to hang off the cliff. Like they're living their life just wanting to be saved again and again and again. Well, now what does what you wish to be done, what does that look like? How's it, what's your obligation to them now? What does it look like to really save them? And here's the thing. If you stop trying to save them from the cliff, they could die. They could truly die. But if you don't stop saving them, they will never live. That, that's, that's the idea of that enabling. And we use Jesus' words often to encourage enabling. We use the Christian, you know, ethos to think, oh, we're gracious and merciful people, but not a grace and mercy that's naive. We want good for people. We want Jesus for people. And so we shouldn't use verses like this to encourage uh, that kind of reality. And I think another example is how we, if we're honest, we just commonly use each other. 
uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, Ginger, she's not Jesus, uh, Ginger is about to uh, teach on uh, a, a passage in James at the Women's Bible Study on, you know, showing favoritism and um, just not showing partiality. And the reality is, to be honest with you, a lot of us doing good to one another is that very thing. It's showing partiality. It's, man, this person can do good for me, I can do for them, and we just mutually use each other and we're just kind of fine with it. Um, as opposed to proactively looking for others to do good to. The, the, the Christian life, uh, the Christian ethos, the Christian motivation is not, oh, I'm gonna help this person because it's gonna end up probably coming back in my favor to, to some degree. Um, but it's, no, I want to do good to other brothers and sisters, to people outside of the faith. I want to do good to others as God has been so gracious and done so good to me. Um, that is what Jesus is calling us to here. And then I think we also have to realize that um, the opposite of the golden rule is just something that is common in our life. Um, that that this, this verse should also just convict us. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's a call, this is what the law does. It's, it's a call to how we should live our life, but it's also a conviction of the very clear ways in our life that we don't live by this. And, and I bring that up because I want us to be a place like we've done bad to others. We, we have not done right by them. We have not reached out when we should. We, we said things we shouldn't have said, um, whether it's family, whether it's friends. And, and we, because of God's grace, we need to be a people that are willing to confess that. Like, I, I pray that Northbrook would be a people that are striving uh, to do good to others, to, to um, do what Jesus would have us do to others, but also that we'd have just as much conversations about the ways that we've failed. That way we say, man, I did not serve you well here, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. Will you forgive me? That we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I, I failed. Will you forgive me? And we know that this grace never runs out, and so we can go to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Uh, we, we don't want to be, we could turn this into a law, can't we, where we're just legalists, oh, well, we're all kind of figuring this out. No, we're not, and, and we're going to struggle with it to the end. And so we need to be a place where we can have uh, those kinds of conversations. Uh, may Northbrook be a place where we look to do others as we would want and a place where we continually extend forgiveness when we sin against one another. And you might ask a, a question here. What is the difference between worldly altruism, so just know Jesus, just worldly doing good to one another, and, and Jesus' golden rule here? Because let's be honest, there are many people in the world that are doing very good things and in pretty selfless ways, like sacrificing a lot of their money, a lot of their time, a lot of their energy, and doing really good things and have nothing to do with Jesus. Actually, even we call this the golden rule. Uh, one commentator said this. One commentator said it was not verified, but it's a good story, so we'll, we'll just pretend like it's definitely true. Um, it's a third century emperor who loved this uh, phrase from Jesus so much uh, that he had it, uh, put it in gold uh, in his palace. That's why it's called uh, the golden rule. And he was someone that wasn't a Christian, but he just thought, man, there's no better thing to live by than this. And so what's the difference between him living by it and us as Jesus followers living by it? Well, the, the rest of the passage helps us answer that question. 
and, and where we see Jesus really make the main point in the sermon so clear. You are, you are with him as a grateful citizen in his kingdom, and he is your king, and he is your Lord, and he is your everything, or you're not. That, that's, that's what Jesus is driving home here. That, that's where he's going uh, with the rest of this passage, and we see it in, in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And, and so this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The main body's over. He's going into the conclusion, and there is really such grace here. And I, I think we can get, uh, I mean, Jesus is pressing against us with uh, this sermon, but Jesus' press is always gracious. Uh, and there's such grace here. Uh, when, we, when we see what he is saying. And he obviously contrasts two options. One gate's narrow and one's wide. Who doesn't love a wide gate? Who doesn't love like a big old road? It's wide, it's open. It's may, you may be even blown away because it's so glorious. I, I haven't been out of the country a lot, but we went to Rome like, I guess it's been almost 12 years ago now. And I just, well, I mean, just in general, I love old big stuff. So if it's old and big, I just loved it. I could just sit there all day and just be like, man, look how old and big this is. Um, and, uh, but in Rome, there's a lot of that. And so it was great. Um, and it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's, it's just mind-blowing. It's just, you know, when things are vast, we are blown away. We are drawn in uh, to them. And that's, this is the, the juxtaposition that, that Jesus is giving here. There's this narrow, small gate, and then there's this wide, open gate that Jesus is saying these are uh, the two options. This one gate's beautiful and glorious. Maybe it was made for someone important. Maybe when we would see the gate and think, man, I'm lucky to even be here. Like, how, how did I get to be here where this wide, open, uh, beautiful gate? And then obviously we think differently about narrow roads and small places. And uh, what's the point? Why is this even here? Can I even fit? Um, and then again, there's, there's the gates and the roads. One's the nicest you've seen, pristine, could walk on this road forever. The other, the other one, is it, is it even a road? It looks so bad. Actually, the, the worst road in the world is, is known as Route National 5 in Madagascar, and it's said to be just uh, horrendous. I, I got a couple pictures of it for you real quick. Speaking of narrow... Um, and then some of y'all may even recognize where this, this is actually from a show. Uh, and then, but I, I love this picture right here. Like if we just think about this, this is the Christian life. This is what Jesus, Jesus is telling us. The road, the narrow road is hard. Like he's like a lot of times, you know, we, we, we think of and we're disappointed, like, man, why is life so hard? Why is it such a struggle? Why? And Jesus is saying, hey, I, I have told you very clearly, very often, that this road's hard. And, and often, I think, when we think of the Christian life, we don't think of this. We think of many other things. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's, there's something more pristine, more clean, You've got room to spread out, less of a struggle, maybe more clarity, uh, you can just kind of figure it out a little easier. But the Christian life, if we're going to count the cost, this is a good picture of much of the Christian life. Uh, but what do we get here? Uh, now, obviously, this is, but we get, we get Jesus with us. That he's tending, he's caring. 
Like even if you think about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount where we might, oh, I'm good. Now think right here and think about be anxious, don't be anxious. <laughs> like, okay, that, that, that exhortation's a little harder in this moment. Um, like, no, everything, you know, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Like, really? I don't know. It doesn't look like all these things are being added to me. Um, but this is the Christian life, and this is the picture that Jesus is giving us. Do you see those, those juxtapositions there? There's the wide, uh, the wide gate and the narrow gate. There's the easy way, and there's the hard way. And then there's life, and then there's destruction. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Um, that there is a, a moment when we get that beautiful gate. There is a moment when we get that easy, light road. But that's not now. And, and so much of our struggle comes from grabbing for that now, when Jesus has promised that this life is not that. The way is hard, um, but he will be with us. Um, again, this is the picture of the Christian life. This is what Jesus is preparing us for. Again, we ask questions like, why is this so hard? And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you all the way, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. I quote David Pallison all the time. He has this one little line where he says, often uh, the way to death feels like life. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. The road that leads to destruction actually in the moment feels like life. But the way to life often feels like death. The, the way, the narrow road that leads to life often feels like death because it is often death. It's part of us dying again and again and again. What Jesus is sanctifying and growing and working in and through us, uh, this is what he's doing. And Jesus knows that there's many things warring against us in this life. There's our own struggles with sin that are the most significant. There are challenging relationships. There's great suffering. There's confusion and there's unknown. That's all true. Jesus knows it's going to be hard, and he's preparing us. And he's laying a choice before us. Do you want a wide, open, easy path that leads away from me? Or do you want a narrow, treacherous path? But on this path, you get me. You get Jesus protecting you with his rod and his staff, tending to you, sanctifying you, comforting you. You get him. So I think it's good for us to consider which way would we choose? Which way even now sounds more appealing? Brothers and sisters, some of you that have really hard struggles in your life right now, this is a good question to consider. Like you may be a Christian and loving Jesus, but really wanting an easier path. Which way are you choosing? Some of you that aren't a Christian, which way are you choosing? The broad or the narrow? So this is the narrow, the broad gate, and then there are also people that claim to be on the narrow road, but they're really leading people down the broad road, and this is what Jesus goes on to warn us of in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So again, as if they're on the narrow road, but they're really on the way that leads away from Jesus. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus isn't talking about perfection here. He's not saying there's some prophets that are completely perfect and other prophets that are completely bad. He's just saying they're eventually going to be exposed by the fruit that comes uh, from their life. And I think sometimes we even confuse verses like this with our theology of total depravity, which simply means that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinful, but we should realize there is a difference between healthy and false prophets. For prophets that uh, love Jesus and are trying to live for him, and then prophets that are about their own sinful, selfish gain. Now, both of these prophets are just in much in need of Jesus. One's not more and one's not less in need of Jesus, but they are different. Um, and so I think sometimes, again, when we try to uh, use our theology in, a, in an unhealthy way, we, we put people on a level, level playing field when Jesus is trying to say they are on a level playing field, but their, their fruits are different. What this person's wanting and desiring and happening and what this person's wanting and desiring are very different. But here's the deal. You know, some are extreme, and we can see some, you know. Uh, you know, we can think of cult leaders and things like that, like some of us have been able to uh, see that that's, okay, that's wrong. Uh, but then some look like me. Some look like preachers we listen to. Some say very things that we're saying. And it's, we're not, we don't always have complete discernment and the perfect ability to discern, uh, but Jesus is saying eventually their fruit is going to show. And, and, we, and that's what we should do. We should judge them by their fruit. Uh, when we have that catch in our, in our spirit of, okay, this looks ungodly, but he's saying all kinds of godly things, but this one thing seems really off. Sometimes what we do is we don't judge that fruit. We just kind of sweep it under the rug and think, but all the other things look so good. So I think he's maybe fine. I think it's fine. Um, and, and at the least, we should, we should listen to, especially when we have chapter and verse of, okay, this is actually sin that this person should not be committing. Uh, we should, Jesus is warning us. Um, what Jesus is saying is that there will be prophets proclaiming that truth, I'm sorry, um, the pro false prophet and the true prophet are in need of the same gospel. And what Jesus is saying, that there will be prophets proclaiming that truth, but their, their fruit will eventually show it was all about them. That they are ravenous wolves leaking, looking to feed on sheep. You know, one passage that came to mind even for me in this as I was thinking about them being ravenous wolves and what do wolves do? They feed on sheep. They eat sheep. And then I think about Peter at the end of John, and what, what did Jesus call him to? He called him to feed my sheep. And so that's the different picture that Jesus is giving us here. There, there's prophets, there's people, there's leaders uh, that are looking to fulfill their own selfish desires. They're looking to grow a crowd. They're looking to uh, massage their pride. They're looking to do whatever they can do. But Jesus is, is, says, prophets are called to feed my sheep not feed on my sheep. Um, and, and that's the difference uh, between false prophets and true prophets. So again, we should be weary of those trying to draw a big crowd or prove their worth or starting a cult to indulge their own selfish desires. Uh, those false prophets abound. And Jesus tells us to beware, to beware of these. And we should be. But there aren't just false prophets. There are also false professors as he goes on. 
In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, I will de- and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is astonishing. Now, there's probably not many of us in here that have cast out demons. Our uttered prophecy in God's name. And yet these very people have done those very things. And yet Jesus is saying, I don't know you. They aren't just professing his name, they're professing his name passionately. Lord, Lord. And man, they have done so many things. Um, And obviously this is a verse that has given many great pause about whether they are truly a Christian. Because you read it, if you're someone that struggles with doubting your faith, you come to these passages and you just, you don't even want to mess with them. You don't want to read them because it, it just, it pricks you. You're like, how do I know? What, uh, you know, can I know? What, what, what is going on here? But I, th- I think it's quite clear what's going on here. Jesus is destroying any hope that any of us have of our faith being based on anything we do. Jesus is saying you can do the most miraculous things. You can do the things that look better than what anybody else has ever done. But your faith, your relationship with me, it has nothing to do with what you've done. It has nothing. Like as Christians, Christianity rises and falls not on anything we do. But guys, we, we get that off, don't we? And we have to be reorient our heart to realize that Christianity rises and falls on everything Jesus has done. It, it rises and falls on the words that he speaks, on what he says, on what he professes over us, and on what he has done for us. And so it's just that, it's that old-fashioned, like if you were to go to heaven and you were like, why would you be there? Like, if you were to explain yourself of how you got to heaven, there's no way that that exclamation can start with, I. There's no way we can, we can come to that moment and think, I, anything. There's nothing that works after you've started with, I. The only thing that works is, he. The only reason I'm here is because who he is and, and what he has done. I have no other reason to be here. And Jesus is, is, is helping us see that we have a tendency to not think that. And this is, this is just as important for Christians as it is for non-Christians. I mean, it's internally important for non-Christians. You have no hope outside of Jesus. But, but for Christians, we just, in our faith, we start to sneak in these things that we do, these things that we've done, these things that we feel like make us something more than we truly are. And, and they're not. I mean, God called us to beautiful things. God's called us to a life of following him and loving him. And those, there's joy in all of that. But what there should be in all of that is a humility that just helps us see that, man, it's all grace. It's all, it's all his work. It's all his kindness. It's all, we had no hope outside of what he has done for us. And if you're on that, 
that going through that wide gate, going through that wide, easy road. What do, you, what do you need that for? What do you need a cross for? Why do you need a cross? There's, there's no need for a cross. Everything's fine. And so isn't that what the cross does? Isn't that what Jesus is doing here by pressing against our, our good works and our good deeds as any kind of justification? He's saying we're all, the cross provides a weightiness to the reality of our need. And, and that's kind of the biggest thing in our day. Like one of the reasons people reject Christianity is because they don't feel like they have any need. They don't feel like sin's really a thing. The world's broken, but there's some ambiguous reason for that. Um, but the cross of Christ shows that our need is more extravagant, more eternal than we can even imagine. And Jesus is constantly through his scriptures bringing us back to that truth. I don't know if for you, but for me, that, that's a breath of fresh air. That's a, man, I need this correction so much more often in my life. I've started to build up my own pride and I need to realize, man, I am hopeless without who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You can be passionate, you can do mighty works in my name, but you have no hope of getting into heaven if you're relying on any of those things to get you into heaven. I mean, the common thing in our day, and it's been for many years now, is, you know what, if there is a God, if I do the best I can, he's probably gonna be happy with me. And many of us live our lives by that kind of thing, even if we profess something different. Uh, and much of our world believes that wholeheartedly. Like, I'm not sure there is a God, but if he is God, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing much better than these other people. Um, surely he's gonna be fairly happy with me, especially if he's grading on a curve. I think I'm, I think I'm gonna get in. Um, but Jesus is obliterating all of that. You and I have no hope. The best looking people. The, the brightest, the best and the brightest that are doing everything they could possibly do. They read the Bible in Greek every morning. Um, they have no hope. They have no hope uh, outside of Christ. Paul says it so clearly in 1 Corinthians, listen to these words. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, him, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are enjoying an easy stroll in their wide gate. Why do we need the cross? Again, because your need is so much greater than you could ever imagine. Guys, we live in a world that's upside down and Jesus turns it right side up. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is doing, is exposing the foolishness of the ways of the world. And we can't, we can't think that and say that and think that's something outside of us. It's the foolishness of the ways of the world that we buy into. And Jesus is giving us this sermon that he might reorient um, our thinking. That the foolishness that is present in, in us. Um, we, we would see his wisdom and who he is uh, and what he has done. Um, 
Our sin is greater than we can imagine, but the cross is uh, a sufficient cure. And so if you're not a Christian, this is your only hope. And if you are a Christian, this is your only hope. Let's pray and thank God for his cross. Lord Jesus, we, as I say, this is our only hope. I just can't do anything but ask, would you make us believe that? Spirit, would you help us see how helpless we are without your work, without you showing us the working in us and through us for your good pleasure to show us the the fullness of Christ and the fullness of our need and the fullness of him meeting us in our need? Would you enliven our hearts with the gratitude that we get to pursue what Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount because of Jesus' work in our life? That even our pursuit of it doesn't justify us Our pursuit of it doesn't make us right, but out of a grateful heart for all you've done, we live lives unto you. And so, Spirit, we just confess that. We confess that we need to believe that. We confess that we want to believe it all the more. And so that's only a work you can do. That's a miraculous work that we need you to do in our hearts and our lives that in everything we do, that as we go to work, that we would believe our only hope is Jesus, is that as we engage our friends and our family, we believe our only hope is Jesus, that as we live with our roommates or go to school, we would believe our only hope is Jesus, that as we pray for one another, that to be healed, that we would believe our only hope is you, Lord Jesus, that whether we travel across the world or that we stay here, like Jesus, you are all, you are it, you are our only hope. And so we confess, Spirit, we we believe. Would you help our unbelief? In Jesus' name, amen.